Welcome everyone to the Tori Says Show. I'm your host, Tori, and today is the 21st of July, 2021. And you know what? Everyone has a very short memory. So today we're just going to get a couple of reminders of what's really going on while um, also examining what they want you to focus on. Uh, So it's been a talk in 2019. We talked about it. In 2020, we talked about it, and yet people forgot. So I think maybe the one thing that we should do is look at and just maybe go back to the basics. How's that? But before we do that, we need to perspective. So uh, yesterday, obviously, everyone had something to say about Robin Ware is his secret name. Dude, that was low-hanging fruit. We had Robin Ware as Joe Biden's, one of Joe Biden's secret names, like minutes after we had access to those emails back in 2020. Okay, let's be fair. But I've actually collated. Not only that, I in, <laughs> I'm going to tell you what his uh, code name was for Secret Service and what his real email was and why we should be concerned. So I'm going to put that in an article. That way my words don't get skewed because, I, you know, a lot of people don't like to say it. They listen to my show for the news, but for some reason people misconstrue things or they imagine something was said or they just add shit to it. So I think if I actually put the evidence and the documentation and kind of say, no, here it is, maybe that won't happen. So speaking about Biden's emails, take a listen to this. This is becoming a serious problem now for both President Biden and his son, who is under criminal investigation by the U.S. attorney out of Delaware and likely special prosecutor John Durham. And if you remember, you you, let, you mentioned the uh, Russian, the so-called Russian disinformation. But if you remember, candidate Joe Biden outright lied and prevaricated when he was asked point blank if he had any knowledge of his son's overseas business dealings with some of the most unsavory and corrupt governments and enterprises. And he told the U.S. media and the American public, I have absolutely no knowledge whatsoever of anything that my son was up to. And if he was up to anything overseas, it was completely legitimate. We now know we have 
evidence, overwhelming evidence, that Joe Biden himself, in at least two occasions, was kept abreast of what Hunter Biden was doing abroad and was trying to himself get directly involved with some of these dealings. Uh, if you recall, Tony Bobulinski, he became some sort of a uh, national name 11 days before the election when he mentioned publicly on uh, Fox News, I believe, or one of the other channels, that he had intimate knowledge that Joe Biden was directly involved in negotiations with Hunter Biden with a corrupt Chinese energy company named CEFC, in which Joe Biden himself would have received a 10% equity share out of some sort of agreement that Hunter Biden and his corporation would have come into with this company. Nothing came about. All right, let me explain to you something. That's not really how it went down. So basically, Tony, Tony Bobulinski was in charge of Cinehawk. Cinehawk, there's Cino Group, Cino this, Cino that. Super fucking Chinese. And the deal that had happened was that another company is going to seed money into a partnership, right, that Joe Biden and Chairman Yi had together. That's basically what happened. I'll put it in writing because it's so confused. He had so many damn business dealings being thrown in the middle. And like George Papa D said, <laughs> his dad knew everything. In fact, they would reach out to his dad to say, hey, is Obama coming too? That's what's up. From this deal, except for a $5 million payout. And it just really goes to show how involved Biden was with some of these countries these foreign dealings and whether or not pay for play was uh, involved here. Well, I mean, it's really staggering. Remember, 10% for the big guy, uh, but no one seems to care about that. You know, just taking this up to a larger 30,000-foot view, big guy is a Obama. macro view of what's happened here, we had a media obsessed with all things Trump. They effectively alleged that President Trump was Al Capone, that the Trump organization was some type of crime syndicate that had latched itself on to the Oval Office. And meanwhile, we have a case here with Hunter Biden, who now has gone from the Parmesan cheese expert to an art connoisseur, uh, the White House making efforts. Ugh, this art thing is pissing me off, pissing me off. He was not a connoisseur. So pissing me off that they whitewashed that shit. To try to conceal the people who spend the big dollars on the artwork he's now producing. Uh, this smells and looks like corruption by all accords, by any natural uh, inclination, and yet somehow no one seems to be bothered by what's occurring in front of us. Uh, Hunter Biden uh, was receiving close to $80,000 a month from a uh, corrupt Ukrainian national uh, natural gas company. With 80000 He didn't even care. He wouldn't get out of bed for $80,000. Let's be straight. That's one, right? We're talking many. There were companies among companies. So the, the deal that Tony Bobulinski was in was a company that was half owned by China that would then give money to another company that was half owned by China in order to do business. And not only that, we got the Huawei chick that fucking lent money to the company that was half owned by Hunter and China. So it's like, it's a hot mess. And not only that, his Chinese companies that are super fucking Chinese, by the way, New Mexico, You've got a Chinese-funded congresswoman. That's going to be coming soon, too. So, uh, you know, they, they, it's so interesting how things are whitewashed because people just take points and they talk about one certain second. It's like, nah, man, step back. Show them a map and, and, and ask them this question. I think it's Ziploc. <laughs>
What country didn't the Biden crime family syndicate do business in? That's better. No natural gas experience or corporate governance experience whatsoever. Uh, based on his memoir, we know that uh, Hunter Biden uh, belonged in rehab much uh, more so than on the board of any company, let alone one in which his father was the point man on. And now after that uh, successful career in the energy business, he has become some sort of artificial in which his uh, artwork is fetching $500,000 from anonymous buyers around the world, in which this has raised tremendous ethics concerns, including from Obama's own ethics are. So the corruption is, uh, is astonishing yet predictable. And we will see how far the media will go to continue to insulate Joe Biden from his son's unsavory behavior. Hi. I'm so we wouldn't have a problem with the media if the right media was doing their job, right? We wouldn't have a problem whatsoever if the right media was doing their job, okay? Nobody cares about the mainstream media. It's about us, all right? Now, they're not going to put him on a platter for anybody. They're not even telling you what's being planned. This is why we're going to go back to school today. We're going to do some Khan Academy today. And this is going to be about Politics 101. Because I think people forget to stand back and look at all the distractions and everything's that happen. Just like this. Take a listen to this today. General Milley. I, I hear what you're saying, but I'm not going to comment on any of the books. Uh, but I want you to know, and I want everyone to know, I want America to know, uh, that the United States military is an apolitical institution. We were then, we are now. And our oath is to the Constitution, not to any individual at all. And the military did not and will not and should not ever get involved in domestic politics. We don't arbitrate elections. That's the job of the judiciary and the legislature and the American people. It is not the job of the U.S. military. We stayed out of politics. We're an apolitical institution. Are you concerned that some of these comments that are attributed to you are making it, pulling you more into politics than you necessarily your, your office should be? Let, 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 me, let me just make a comment here. I, you know, uh, it's a, really important to me that this department remain apolitical. And and so uh, we're going to do uh, everything within our power to make sure that our troops, our leadership, uh, both uh, civilian and, and, uh, and military, uh, remain focused on the task at hand and understand that they are not a part of the, of the political uh, apparatus there. All right, I want to show you this guy's face because I want you to remember this guy's face, all right? You need to remember this guy's face. Uh, for those of you that are watching, remember this dude's face, all right? Just, just listen to what he said. Listen. Not a part of the, of the political uh, apparatus there, so we will remain apolitical. Remember that man's face. It's going to be very important coming soon. So where should we go? We should go to um, what they, what Don Lamont says about, you look like an idiot. Don Lamont reacts to Rand Paul's dust-up with Fauci. I'm glad that they're showing the dust-up because they think it's a win. And then when people watch it, they're like, wait a minute, what? He didn't deny it. Wait a minute, what's going on here? Take a listen to his intro. Deniers. Senator Rand Paul, well, he tried to make Dr. Anthony Fauci into his personal punching bag today as they went head to head over the senator's bogus claims that the National Institutes of Health somehow played a role in funding research that led to the origins of the pandemic. And Dr. Fauci was definitely not having Dr. Fauci, knowing that it is a crime to lie to Congress, do you wish to retract your statement of May 11th where you claimed that the NIH never funded gain of function research in Wuhan? 
Senator Paul, you do not know what you are talking about, quite frankly. And I want to say that officially. You do not know what you are talking about. This is a pattern that Senator Paul has been doing now at multiple hearings based on no reality. He keeps talking about gain of function. This has been evaluated multiple times by qualified people to not fall under the gain of function definition. I have not lied before Congress. I have never lied, certainly not before Congress. You are implying that what we did was responsible for the deaths of individual. I totally resent that. Have and if anybody and is lying here, Senator, it is you. Oh, he was shaking. He was so pissed. Now, what is wrong with Rand? What is wrong with Don Lamont? Isn't he retired? Wasn't he supposed to stop working and focusing on his white husband who isn't too white because he's acceptable? Yeah, that one. So uh, <laughs> where do we go today? Today, we need to visit some very pertinent facts. But before we do, I want to um, show you this really nice clip about, uh, you know, Rules for rulers. It's uh, quite fascinating, and you'll understand why. Want to rule? Do you see the problems in your country and know how to fix them? If only you had the power to do so. Well, you've come to the right place. But before we begin this lesson in political power, ask yourself, why don't rulers see as clearly as you? Instead, acting in such selfish, self-destructive, short-sighted ways. Are they stupid, these most powerful people in the world? Or is it something else? The throne looks omnipotent from afar, but it is not as it seems. Take the throne to act, and the throne acts upon you. Accept that or turn back now before we discuss the rules for rulers. No matter how bright the rays of any sun king, no man rules alone. A king can't build roads alone, can't enforce laws alone, can't defend the nation or himself alone. The power of a king is not to act, but to get others to act on his behalf, using the treasure in his vaults. A king needs an army and someone to run it, treasure and someone to collect it, law and someone to enforce it. The individuals needed to make the necessary things happen are the king's keys to power. All the changes you wish to make are but thoughts in your head if the keys will not follow your commands. In a dictatorship where might makes right, the number of keys to power is small. Perhaps only a dozen generals, bureaucrats, and regional leaders. Sway them to your side and the power to rule is yours. But never forget, displease them and they will replace you. Now, all countries lie on a spectrum, from those where the ruler needs few key supporters to those where the ruler needs many. This foundation of power is why countries are different, yet many keys or few, the rules are the same. First, get the key supporters on your side. With them, you have the power to act. You have everything. Without them, you have nothing. Now, in order to keep those keys to power, you must, second, control the treasure. You must make sure your treasure is raised and distributed to you for all your hard work and to the keys needed to keep your position. This is your true work as a ruler, figuring out how best to raise and distribute resources so as not to topple the house of cards upon which your throne 
sits. Now you, aspiring benevolent dictator, may want to help your citizens, but your control of the treasure is what attracts rivals, so you must keep those keys loyal. But there's only so much treasure in your vaults, so much wealth your kingdom produces, so beware. Every bit of treasure spent on citizens is treasure not spent on loyalty. Thus doing the right thing, spending the wealth of the nation on the citizens of the nation, hands a tool of power acquisition to your rivals. Treasure poured into roads and universities and hospitals is treasure a rival can promise to key supporters if only they switch sides. Benevolent dictators can spend their take on the citizens, but the keys must get their rewards, for even if you have gathered the most loyal, angelic supporters, they have the same problem as you, just one level down. Being a key to power is a position of power. They too must watch out for rivals from below or above. Thus, the treasure they get must also be spent to maintain their position. The loyal and dim may stay by your side no matter what, but smart key supporters will always watch the balance of power, ready to change allegiance if you look to be the loser in a shifting web of alliances. In countries where the keys are few, the rewards are great, and when violence rules, the most ruthless are attracted, and angels that build good works will lose to devils that don't. So buy all the loyalty you can, because loyalty in dictatorial organizations of all kinds is everything. For the ruler, anyway. Thus, the dictatorship exposed. A king who needs his court to raise the treasure to keep the court loyal and keep raising the treasure. This is the self-sustaining core of power. All outside is secondary. Now, a king with many key supporters has real problems. Not just their expense, but also their competing needs and rivalries are difficult to balance. The more complicated the social and financial web between them all, the more able a rival is to sway a critical mass. The more key supporters a ruler has on average, the shorter their reign. Which brings us to the third rule for rulers, minimize key supporters. If a key in your court becomes unnecessary, his skills no longer required, you must kick him out. After a successful coup, the new dictator will purge some of those who helped him come to power while working with the underlings of the previous dictator, which from the outside seems a terrible idea. Why abandon your fellow revolutionaries? Are the old dictator's supporters not a danger? But the keys necessary to gain power are not the same as those needed to keep it. Having someone on the payroll who was vital in the past but useless now is the same as spending money on the citizens. Treasure wasted on irrelevant. And by definition, a dictator that pulls off a coup has promised greater treasure to those switching sides. The size of the vault has not changed, so the treasure must be split among fewer. A dictator that sways the right keys, takes control of the treasure, cuts unnecessary spending, kills unnecessary keys, will have a long and successful career. Seeing the structure unveiled, you might be excited to get started and control a country to the benefit of you and your cronies, or you might be exhausted, wishing to do good but seeing the structural difficulties now turn to democracy for salvation. So let us discuss rulers as representatives. You again might have grand dreams of the utopia you wish to build, but 
no man rules alone, and never more so than in democracy. Presidents and prime ministers must negotiate with their senates and parliaments and vice versa, and they all have their own key supporters to manage. In a well-designed democracy, power is fractured among many and is taken not with force, but with words, meaning you must get thousands or millions of citizens to, if not like you on election day, at least like you better than the alternative. With so many voters and such fractured power, it's impossible to, as a dictator would, follow these rules and buy loyalty. Or is it? Of course not. Don't think of citizens as individuals with their individual desires, but instead as divided into blocks. The elderly or homeowners or business owners or the poor. Blocks you can reward as a group. Democracies have wildly complicated tax codes and laws, not as accident, but as reward for the blocks that get and keep the ruling representatives in power. Farming subsidies, for example, have nothing to do with the food a nation needs, but entirely with how key the vote of the farming block is. Countries where farmers' votes don't swing elections don't have farming subsidies. If a block doesn't vote, such as younger citizens, then no need to divert rewards their way. Even if large in number, they are irrelevant to gaining power. Which is good news for you. One less block to sway, and the treasure you give your key blocks has to come from somewhere. If you want long years in office, rule three is your friend in a democracy just as much as a dictatorship. You can't eliminate those who don't vote for you, but there is still much you can do. Once in power, make it easier for your key blocks to vote and harder for others. Establish voting systems that reduce the number of blocks you need to win the more rivals you get. Very handy indeed. Draw election borders to predetermine the results for you or your cronies, and have party pre-elections with Byzantine rules to determine who blocks even can vote for. Mix and match the above for even better power perpetuation. When approval ratings couldn't be lower, yet re-election rates couldn't be higher, you'll know you've succeeded. Now, enough with thinking about the citizens. Even in a democracy, there still are very influential individual key supporters you need on your side, because their money or influence or favors keeps you in power. While you can't just promise to give them treasure directly, as a dictator would, you can create loopholes for their investments, pass laws that they've written, or print get-out-of-jail-free cards for their actions. Not a wheelbarrow of gold to the door, but contracts for their business. You as a ruler do have roads to build, or computers to maintain, or buildings to reconstruct. No man rules alone, after all. Or you could take the moral path and ignore the big keys, but you'll fight against those who didn't. Good luck with that. Corruption is not some kind of petty crime, but rather a tool of power in democracies and dictatorships. But more on that another time. So accept the favors, sway the key blocks, and you will get into power, ruling with actions that look contradictory and stupid to those who don't understand the game, privately helping a powerful industry you publicly denounced, or passing laws that hurt a block that voted for you. But your job isn't to have a consistent, understandable ruling policy, but to balance the interests of your keys to power, big and small. That is how you stay in office. Now, with all this headache of being a representative, you may wonder, looking at Rule 3, why couldn't you skip all this block-building, favor-trading nonsense and just bribe the army to take power? We must finally turn to 
taxes, and revolts. You must understand rule two and how the treasure is raised and used to hold the country together. If we graph the tax rate of countries versus the number of key supporters the ruler needs, there's a clear relationship. More democracy, lower taxes. If you're sitting comfortably in a cushy democracy, you may scoff at this, but your fellow citizens who don't earn enough don't pay income taxes and get rebates, bringing the average tax rate down. In dictatorships, this doesn't happen. Dictatorships often forego tax paperwork in favor of just taking wealth directly. It's common for the dictator to force farmers to sell their produce to him for little, then turn around and sell it on the open market, pocketing the difference at an unthinkably high equivalent tax rate. So taxes in democracies are low in comparison to dictatorships. But why do representatives lower their take? Well, cutting taxes is a crowd pleaser. Dictators have no need to please the crowds and thus can take a large percentage from their poor citizens to pay key supporters. But representatives in a democracy can take a smaller percentage from each to pay their key supporters because their educated, freer citizens are more productive than peasants. For rulers in a democracy, the more productivity, the better, which is why they build universities and hospitals and roads and grant freedoms, not just out of the goodness of their hearts, but because it increases citizen productiveness, which increases treasure for the ruler and their key supporters, even when a lower percentage is taken. Democracies are better places to live than dictatorships, not because representatives are better people, but because their needs happen to be aligned with a large portion of the population. The things that make citizens more productive also make their lives better. Representatives want everyone productive so everyone gets highways. The worst dictators are those whose incentives are aligned with the fewest citizens, those who have the fewest keys to power. This explains why the worst dictatorships have something in common, gold or oil or diamonds or similar. If the wealth of a nation is mostly dug out of the ground, it's a terrible place to live because a gold mine can run with dying slaves and still produce great treasure. Oil is harder, but luckily foreign companies can extract and refine it without any citizen involvement. With citizens outside this cycle, they can be ignored while the ruler is rewarded and the keys to power kept loyal. Thus, we live in a world where the best, smartest democracies are stable, the worst, richest dictatorships are stable, and in between is a valley of revolution. The resource-rich dictators build roads only from their ports to their resources and from their palace to the airport, and the people stay quiet not because this is fine or even because they're scared, but because the cold truth is starving, disconnected illiterates don't make good revolutionaries. Now, a middling dictator without resources must, as mentioned before, take a large amount of wealth directly from his poor farmers and factory workers. Thus, two roads won't do, and so he must maintain some minimums of life for the citizens. But keeping the workforce somewhat connected and somewhat educated and somewhat healthy makes them more 
able to revolt. Now understand, the romantic image of the people storming the gates and overthrowing their dictator is mostly a fantasy. If you run a middling dictatorship, the people only storm the palace when the army lets them to remove you because you lost control over your keys and are being replaced. This is why after popular revolts in middling dictatorships, the new ruler is often the same as the old, if not worse. The people didn't replace the king, the court replaced the king, using the people's protest they let happen to do it. The very things a benevolent dictator wants to build to cross this valley take treasure away from the keys to power and make the citizens more able to revolt, often ending in a stronger ruler less likely to build bridges and more loyal to his keys. On the other side, the best democracies are stable, not just because the large number of keys and their competing desires makes dictatorial revolt near impossible to organize, but also because the revolt would destroy the very wealth it intended to capture, the high productivity of the citizens. Plus, those helping the would-be dictator in a democracy know he plans to cull key supporters once in power. That's what a coup is. So potential key supporters must weigh the probability of surviving the cull and getting the rewards versus the risk of being on the outside of a dictatorship they helped create. In a stable democracy, that's a terrible gamble. Maybe you'll be incredibly wealthy, but probably you'll be dead and have made the lives of everyone you know worse. The math says no. Being on the right side of a coup in a dictatorship means having the resources to get you and your family what the peasants lack. Healthcare, education, quality of life. This is what makes the competition for power so fierce. But in a democracy, most already have these things, so why risk it? So the more the wealth of a nation comes from the productive citizens of the nation, the more the power gets spread out and the more the ruler must maintain the quality of life for those citizens. The less, the less. Now, if a stable democracy becomes very poor, or if a resource that dwarfs the productivity of the citizens is found, the odds of this gamble change and make it more possible for a small group to seize power. Because if the current quality of life is terrible, or the wealth not dependent on the citizens, coups are worth the risk. When democracies fall, these are usually the reasons. So how was that? That pretty much sums up how to be a dictator. And if you notice, you're still a dictator during a democracy because it's never about the people. It's always about the people that they need to do their job. And that's because the people that are placed as keys by us under whoever is ruling <laughs> were never there for us. They were there for the gold or for the little bitcoins. So I think it was uh, quite beneficial for us to uh, review that and see it together because now we're going to get into the gist of five dictators, five signs. This is history unleashed. And why do you need this? Because <laughs> you're going to see what is really happening in the house now. And I'm very disappointed that only McCarthy talked about it. Take a listen. Totalitarians, autocrats, dictators, call them what you will, they're on the rise. In country after country, the trend is towards strongmen and even military-style government. This shift is happening in many democracies, particularly among the millennial generation who express misgivings about liberal democracy's effectiveness. Men such as Lenin, 
Stalin, Mussolini, Hitler, and Mao could one day reappear, but in a different form. With an eye on the human condition, this is insight. These five well-known totalitarians had at least five characteristics in common. It's worth thinking about these traits because autocrats are here now and others are no doubt waiting in the wings. Capacity for violence was a key trait of last century's dictators. They were killers from the start. Before they ever gained power, they led terror groups against their own people, purged their followers, and displayed deep-seated hatred for various classes and ethnic minorities. It was Lenin's dictum that terror legitimized the state. Stalin mastered the concept, and six to nine million lost their lives as he rid the Soviet Union of enemies of the state, including Politburo members, quotas of the innocent, and the entire class of farmers. Mussolini organized Italy's post-World War I fascist terror group. He purged close comrades, and even his own son-in-law. He rounded up Jews and sent thousands of them to their deaths in Nazi camps in Austria. Hitler's bitter manifesto, Mein Kampf, had laid bare his long-term goal of cleansing the world of Jews, Marxists, Slavs, and any group he considered non-Aryan and inferior. 11 to 12 million died under his hand, more than half of them Jews. Mao Zedong followed a similar pattern. In the early days, he led the long march of 80,000 communists for thousands of miles. Despite the epic journey they shared, Mao murdered colleagues and followers. Only a fraction of the marchers survived to tell the tale. By the time his 27-year rule of China ended, an estimated 42.5 million had perished in waves of terror and purges from starvation and from brutal overwork. The personality cult centered on the leader is another aspect common to the dictators. In the Soviet Union, Lenin and Stalin were presented like saints in Russian iconic art, even Christ-like, complete with halo. Italian schoolchildren were taught to revere Mussolini. After each day's recitation of the Roman Catholic creed, they were to repeat their, I believe in Mussolini. He could do no wrong and never be questioned. He allowed the myth that he was God's gift to Italy. Hitler, too, was viewed as a divine blessing, the savior leader the German nation awaited. Followers lauded his mystical insight, compared him to Christ, and were overcome by a kind of religious conversion. Mao was the great helmsman, guiding his people to world power. Just reading the little red book of the chairman's thought was said to cure illness. Closely connected is the co-opting of religion for political purposes. Though the Soviet Federation was atheistic, Stalin knew that religion was a powerful means of uniting people. After Lenin's death, he promoted the former leader as a messiah, embalming his body and placing it on permanent display as a kind of holy relic. One of Mussolini's first acts as Duce was to have a crucifix placed in every classroom. But then he also wrote, fascism is a religious conception of life. 
which transcends any individual and raises him to the status of an initiated member of a spiritual society. Hitler adopted Christian terminology in his speeches, creating the impression of a Christ-like figure, a man of destiny. In reality, Hitler despised Christianity as a weak religion. Mercy and forgiveness had no part in his war religion. Mao Zedong much admired China's Hong Shuquan, a 19th century Christian and self-proclaimed heavenly king. Mao had a favorable impression of Hong's messianic regime and took it as an inspiration, using it to legitimate his own. Yet Hong brought about the death of 20 million in his efforts to establish his kingdom. Delusions of grandeur were never far from the surface in these men's minds. The conviction of being God's chosen instrument, a superman, even the reincarnation of a previous strongman, dominated their thinking. Stalin framed himself as Vojd, the leader and teacher of his people. Mussolini saw himself as a new Augustus Caesar, ushering in a neo-Roman civilization. Hitler believed he was the great leader who would return Germany to the pinnacle of power following the humiliating defeat of World War I. Mao is said to have referred to himself as a god and a law unto himself. Marxist-Leninism imagined communism as the new world order. Stalin promoted the same goal. Mussolini was intent on creating a new city within Rome named Eur as a model for the rest of the world, populated by the new man and woman devoted to fascist ideals. Hitler's new city, Gdania, was designed to become the new world capital, and his Third Reich, one that would last a thousand years. Like others, Mao's appetite for power was all-encompassing. The role of supreme leader of China was insufficient. He wanted to take over the planet. He said, in my opinion, the world needs to be unified. In the past, many, including the Mongols, the Romans in the West, Alexander the Great, Napoleon, and the British Empire, wanted to unify the world. Today, both the United States and the Soviet Union want to unify the world. Hitler wanted to unify the world, but they all failed. It seems to me that the possibility to unify the world has not disappeared. In my view, the world can be unified. These five characteristics of totalitarians are remarkably evident in what biblical forecasting says about a final autocrat referred to as the beast. As the world's ultimate dictator, he's set to rule with the ferocity of a wild animal in the tradition of the Roman Empire of old. That system is described as a voracious and violent beast with huge iron teeth. Other leaders, we're told, will voluntarily submit to his leadership for a short period, and all tribes, tongues, and nations will fall under his authority. His ally, a great religious leader, will make use of miracles and convince people to worship this beast. Like others before him, that last dictator will claim divinity, sitting like God in his temple, and he will head an economic and political combine with global reach. Can it happen? 
Given today's trend toward autocratic leaders, there's no reason to think it can't. In a take on Mark Twain's comment, a modern writer, historian Timothy Snyder, says, history does not repeat, but it does instruct. Seeing before us the dangers of tyranny, let's hope that we can accept that instruction. When such a final dictator comes, you and I don't need to be unaware of his arrival, nor join in his fate. If you'd like to know more, search dictators at vision.org. For Insight, I'm David Hume. How awesome was that? I think that was like an awesome clip. Now, before um, we break, I want to show to you what Kevin McCarthy said uh, in regards to Pelosi today about pulling uh, the January 6th committee picks. And then we're going to move on to other stuff, he said. So you guys can understand what's really, really at battle here because uh, we're kind of swaying. Pelosi has taken the unprecedented step of denying the minority party's picks for the select committee on January 6th. This represents something that has not happened in the House before for a select committee by the historian. It's an egregious abuse of power. And if you remember the previous video, a coup is a risk she's willing to take. Pelosi has broken this institution. Denying the voice of members who have served in the military. Jim Banks, a Navy veteran who served in Afghanistan. Serves on Hask, chair of the largest caucus in the Republican conference. And law enforcement, as well as a leader of a standing committee. Jim Jordan isn't ranking of just his first committee. He's done it before. Jim Jordan has served on select committee and serves on one now. Made it undeniable this panel has lost all legitimacy and credibility. And it shows exactly what I warned back at the beginning of January, that Pelosi would play politics with this. For more than six months, you have a better example of the Senate, bipartisan. Schumer didn't pick who went on of the Republicans. They already have the report done by two different committees. Just pay attention. This is what they want. They want you to get angered. They want you to take the streets. Two main questions. Why was the Capitol so ill-prepared for that day when they knew on December 14th they had a problem? And what have we done to make sure that never happens again? Pelosi has created a sham process. Unless Speaker Pelosi reverses course and seats all five Republicans, we will not participate. But we think it's too important that those two questions, why were we ill-prepared? Why did they know on December 14th? Why would they jeopardize the lives of the Capitol Police? Huh. Do you remember what I told you about those three that she accepted yesterday? Oh, shit. Looks like Tori knows. Yes, she fucking does. Did you see? I said, remember those three things? Dude, oh, man, man, man. We will run our own investigation. We have law enforcement. 
We have military. We have doctors. We have people from all walks of life. They want to know the answer. The American people deserve that. They don't deserve politics. They don't deserve destroying the institution. No committee in Congress will work if one person is picking all who can serve. This has not happened before. House Democrats must answer this question. Why are you allowing a lame duck speaker to destroy this institution? This is the people's house, not Pelosi's house. We will do our job, though. We ask to do our job. We want to do our job. I may object to the people that she put on the committee, but I respect her right to do it, just as every leader has done before. Destroy an institution for your own political gain. America expects more and deserves more. You've been listening to House Minority Leader Kevin. So um, we're going to take a short break uh, so that we can get coffee done up. And now I'm going to show you how Kevin is actually fighting for you. And you're just not seeing it yet. And it's sad because so many people say so many thumpy things without paying attention at all. So we're going to go with our friend Tom McDonald and you can't cancel, right? Uh, because that is the fact. You can't cancel the people. You can't. My grind wicked, write my rhymes different. You can try to quantify the fine limits. There's a dying gimmick and denying winning. This is pure fire. This ain't white privilege. I do what I want. Get all the Gucci and Louis Vuitton. Out of my closet, out of my crib. I do not want it. That is for kids. That is for rappers who ask you to produce their beats for free. Pretending I'm not like they rich. I am not playing it safe. I said what I said. It is what it is. I don't care if you mad at me, okay? Go ahead and change the channel. No wasted time trying to cancel me. They love me because they know that I'm it. Say what you want, I guess it is what it is. Haters can talk, but they can't cancel the kid. Go ahead and go off, try and say this is it. But I swear to God, you can't cancel the kid. They want all of you canceled. They want the truth canceled. They want everything canceled. And you know what else they want? They want your rights to vote and to pick your candidates canceled. And if you don't believe me, well, wait till you see what has been going on for the past two years and what's really happening. But before we do that, there's a lot of people that don't understand how campaign financing works. I mean, a lot of us are getting RNC letters, give us money. I've sent them. I even drew a nice middle finger and sent it back and said, nope, you're not for me. You ain't getting a penny. In the United States and the very... Here Let's go. talk a little bit about money and elections in the United States and the various actors that might be involved. You, of course, at the center of the action, you have the various campaigns for the candidates. Then you have the party committees that will try to influence the election. We'll talk about how in a little bit. You have individuals who, besides being voters, can also be donors. And then you have organizations. It could be corporations. It could be interest groups. It could be labor unions. And then last but not least, we have these two boxes where you see PAC-1 and PAC-2. And so the obvious question is, what is a PAC? Well, it stands for Political Action Committee. 
and they've been around for decades. And a simple way to think about it is it's a way to pool resources, which then can be donated to other parties to influence an election. But how can the money actually flow? Well, as you can see, it can flow in many, many, many different ways. And to help us understand this, I'm going to introduce some terminology that you might have heard before. There is hard money. And hard money is money that is actually regulated by the Federal Election Committee. And there are caps in terms of how much people can donate to various parties. In general, any donation to a candidate's campaign is considered hard money. So that would be hard money there coming from the individuals. This would be hard money right over here coming from that pack, which is pooled a bunch of money. This would be hard money right over here coming from that pack to Donald Trump's campaign. This would be hard money coming from the Democratic Party to Hillary Clinton's campaign or from the Republican Party to Donald Trump's campaign. If there's something called hard money, perhaps there's also something called soft money. And you would be correct. There is something called soft money. A simple definition for soft money is it doesn't have the regulations that hard money does. And so an example of it would be, let's say the Democratic Party here, some of the money that they spend, so I'll just draw some of the money they spend, this part right over here, or maybe some of the money that the Republican Party spends during the election. It's used for what's sometimes known as party building activities, to get more people to join their party or to advertise about certain issues. And as long as it's done not in coordination with the candidates' campaigns, this is not going to have any limit. And so some of the money that goes from an individual to a party or some of the money that goes from a pack to a party can also be considered soft money if, once again, if it keeps separate from coordinating with a candidate's actual campaign and used for those party-building activities. Now, party building is a pretty broad definition, and soft money has been demonized a lot because people say, well, it's just a way of getting around campaign finance regulations because even though it might not be directly coordinated with a candidate's campaign, it can influence an election in a pretty significant way. Now, to further understand this diagram, you see these dotted lines between the corporations or the labor unions and these political action committees. What does that mean? Well, a political action committee can be connected or sponsored by a corporation or a labor union, but it cannot receive funds directly from the treasury of that corporation or labor union. But the corporation can sponsor it, can say, hey, this is associated with us. And it can, if it's a, say, a labor union, it can go to its membership and say, hey, I want you to donate to this pack. If it's a corporation, it can go to its management team and say, hey, let's all donate to this pack personally. Or it could go to its shareholders and say, hey, why don't we all donate to this pack? Because this pack can donate money to the party or the candidate that might help influence the election in a way that might benefit us or benefit the corporation. Now, an attempt to limit soft money came in 2002 when you have the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act of 2002, often known as McCain-Feingold, who are the two sponsors in the Senate. Among other things, it tried to limit this soft money. After this act, even this party spending would have to be hard money. It would have to be subjected to the caps when they are raising that money. It also made clear that corporations and labor unions couldn't participate in what's called electioneering activities, where they're spending money on, say, issue-based ads with oftentimes the intent of influencing the election, especially in the run-up to the election. So this was made explicitly illegal as well.
But this gets challenged in 2010, where you have this major case, Citizens United versus the Federal Election Okay, pay attention. Committee. Citizens United was an organization that was releasing a movie called Hillary the Movie during the 2008 election. And this was a movie that was pretty negative on Hillary Clinton. And so the argument of the government was that, hey, even though this looks like a movie, it's really political advertising. It's electioneering as we ha- as we go into the run-up to an election. And so Citizens United, which is a nonprofit corporation, should not be able to do this. But the Supreme Court ruled in Citizens United's favor. They said as long as they are not coordinating with the actual candidates' campaigns, they are allowed, based on the notion of free speech, to directly participate in electioneering in the run-up to an election. And to a large degree, the Citizens United ruling from 2010 really gutted the strength of the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act of 2002. That act was trying to curtail soft money that, for the most part, was going through parties. But now, post-Citizens United, on both sides, folks started to say, gee, I could start an organization that pulls money. Let's call that a PAC. But I'm going to keep it independent. It's not going to coordinate in any other way with the elections of the individual candidates. And so this is often referred to technically as an independent expenditure pack. And here, post-Citizens United, I can get unlimited, unlimited funding from corporations or from individuals that is not regulated in terms of spending caps. And now I can spend an unlimited amount of money on electioneering to try to influence the campaign. And because of the power of these types of independent expenditure PACs, they have been termed super PACs. Now, the key difference between a super PAC and a regular PAC is that the regular PACs that we talked about have limitations in terms of how much money people can donate to them. They actually even can't take direct money from the treasuries of a corporation or a labor union. They also had limitations in terms of how much they could donate to an individual campaign, but they could donate to a campaign. A super PAC, on the other hand, can take unlimited amounts of funds from individuals, from other PACs, and it could actually take money from corporate treasuries themselves. And as long as they are independent of the candidates' campaigns, they don't coordinate with them, they can spend as much money as they would like. So as always, it's really interesting to think about What is going to be the eventual repercussions of Citizens United versus FEC? We've already seen in the 2016 elections money approaching a billion dollars in terms of super PAC money. What is the influence that has on the democracy? But a lot of folks might immediately demonize a super PAC and say, hey, money was already in politics and this is just making it worse, where now you have corporations that are essentially being able to directly contribute large amounts of money. We've always had issues with foreign nationals contributing to our elections. We've always tried to prevent that. But a corporation can have ownership from around the world, even if it's a United States-based corporation. How do you prevent foreign interest from showing up through this money? But on the other hand, I encourage you to read the Supreme Court's rulings because they had some very strong arguments in terms of a slippery slope. If you don't allow Citizens United to publish a movie saying that it's electioneering, At what point is something a political organization or a media organization? And the Supreme Court found it very difficult to regulate Citizens United without going down a slippery slope where they would have to regulate a whole set of corporations and media. 
I'll let you think about it. But these questions are quite interesting. Hello, I'm Craig, and this is Crash Course Government and Politics. And hi, I'm Tori, and my computer wasn't working with me, thank you. So as you see, this is how they're uh, gaining money in order to take your vote. Well, the question should be, well, if there's things in place that are supposedly supposed to help us, so that corporations can't get into it, so that people can avoid such pitfalls, then how is this happening? Well, here's how it's happening. Let me take you back to 2019 and now with fresh ears, with 2021 ears, please take a listen. Our democracy with stiff competition, uh, that stands as a prominent one. Uh, I'm now very pleased to yield to the distinguished chair of our task force, a leader in restoring confidence in government and increasing the role of the people for the people in government, Congressman John Sarbanes. Uh, uh, thank you. Thank you, Madam Speaker. Um, yeah, here we are 200 days since we first introduced um, H.R. 1, the For the People Act. Mitch McConnell still will not bring it to the floor of the United States Senate. This bill was crafted in response to what we were hearing from the American public and the freshman members of Congress who are standing behind me, we will hear from uh, in a moment, carried that message uh, loud and clear to this chamber. Our speaker heard that message and she leaned in on day one and we introduced this. As soon as we put our hands down from taking the oath of office, HR 1, the For the People Act, was introduced with the leadership of speaker. Pay attention to what he's saying. Pelosi, but with the championing that came from the freshman class. And the message that was heard from the American public that we took to heart and we put into the, the soul of HR 1, was number one, they were saying to us, you shouldn't have to run an obstacle course to get to the ballot box in America, so we need to strengthen voting and registration and push back on, on voter suppression across the country. The second thing that they said to us, the message that was coming that we heard loud and clear was, when you go to Washington, you should behave yourself, you should act ethically, you should abide by the rules, conflict of interest rules, and so forth. So we built a part of HR 1 that would address ethics and accountability. And the third thing, the third message that was coming to members of Congress from the American people was when you get to Washington, don't get tangled up in the money. Remember who sent you there. Don't work for the insiders and the PACs and the super PACs and the lobbyists uh, and the special interests. Work for us, the American people. And that was embodied in reforms that create transparency about where the big money comes from. So let's pay attention a second. So you just saw how this big money comes in, right? And you saw what laws they created in order to make sure that the big money keeps coming in. And you also saw how they're supposed to be fail safes and checks and balances, right? And they're all definitely not working. So now you need to listen to what they're telling you of how these checks and balances are going to work builds a new system for powering campaigns that makes small donors the most important people out there and strengthens the enforcement tools that we have here to catch people that are breaking the law on campaign finance in real time. That was all put into HR1 in the House. Democrats heard those messages from the American people and we immediately translated it into a blueprint, a framework for democracy reform, which was HR1. 
Mitch McConnell apparently is not listening the way we're listening, because for 200 days, he's kept H.R. 1 on the Senate side without bringing it to the floor. We're asking him, bring this landmark legislation that can fix our democracy to the Senate floor so the people can have a vote. And it's my privilege now to uh, introduce really the person who made sure we got this done in terms of regular order um, in the House uh, of Representatives, and that's Zoe Lofgren, who is the chair of the House Administration Committee, where all of this was pulled together and we were able to get it uh, over the finish line in the House of Representatives. So, so that is insane, isn't it? It's completely insane. So let me show you um, what they're really doing. If you guys are ready for this, now you're going to see um, how they are corrupting it. Now, this is the first portion, and this is from Forbes, okay? This is from Steve Forbes telling you about this. Take a listen. A new bill that would contaminate and corrupt future elections in America. Hello, I'm Steve Forbes, and this is What the Head, where you get the insights you need to help navigate these turbulent times. The integrity of future elections in this country is under assault. Congressional Democrats are determined to pass a bill with the innocent-sounding name of For the People Act of 2021. Don't be fooled. It is the most blatant assault ever on the honesty of our electoral system. Among its many awful provisions, this bill would force voter registration. Every state would have to automatically register voters based on names in state and federal databases, such as state departments of motor vehicles, welfare offices, food stamps, Medicare, Medicaid, and many more. People not here legally would automatically register if they're on one of those databases. This means enormous duplication of names and opportunity for fraud. It would ban voter ID. You must have some form of identification to board a plane, get a driver's license, open a bank account, and countless other activities. Why shouldn't a state be allowed to require valid ID to participate in the most sacred exercise in a democracy? The bill would mandate same-day voter registration. Without ID, this move is ripe for enabling ineligible individuals to vote. It would force states to have online voting registration, an open invitation for hacking and fraud. It restricts states from using the U.S. Postal Service's national change of address system to verify addresses of registered voters. States would be barred from using undeliverable election mail as a reason for challenging the eligibility of a voter. The bill would stop states from comparing voter registration rolls to remove people who may be registered in more than one state. The legislation would also ban absentee ballot requirements for the signature for witness or other form of notarization to ensure that the ballot is from an eligible voter. It would compel states to count ballots cast by voters outside their assigned precincts, another invitation for fraud. It would mandate states allow the registration of 16 and 17-year-olds. Theoretically, they couldn't vote until they're 18, but without ID or other safeguards, you know they'd be underage voting. It would force states to permit ballot harvesting, whereby campaign workers can pick up absentee ballots from people with no independent oversight. This has been a big source of election abuse, especially in California. The Democrats' legislation would strip state legislatures from drawing lines for congressional districts and instead leave that up to so-called independent commissions, which, no surprise in states where it's used, such as New Jersey and California, favor the Democrats. The bill has other horrors that would restrict free speech, assault the independence of the judiciary, and encourage political abuses from the IRS. 
Let's hope this bill is deep-sixed. I'm Steve Forbes. Thanks for listening. Do send in your comments and suggestions. I look forward to being with you soon again. So he touched upon the fact that, uh, you know, you're not going to be able to vote and they're going to be voting for you and it's all going to be online and you're not going to be able to dispute it. Your state's not going to be able to dispute it. They are centralizing voting, but they're doing more than that. So I wanted to show you a clip (laughs) of ABC trying to verify if Nancy Pelosi used Social Security funds to fund the impeachment. Why? You'll understand why. Our Verify team exists to fact check all the suspicious things that you're reading online. So one of you saw a story on Facebook that said this. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi took millions from Social Security to fund the president's impeachment hearings. Now, this has been shared hundreds of times on social media, so you're asking us to verify, is it true? All right, so we traced this claim back to a website called potatriotsunite.com. So it's a satirical website. Everything on the site is fiction, and they don't hide it. On this article alone, the word satire appears three times. So our researchers did go deeper. We asked Social Security expert Alex Lawson whether Congress could ever divert money that way. It's impossible. There's no mechanism of it. The law is really clear. Says Alex Lawson, executive director of Social Security Works, from his bedroom. That the premiums that we pay into Social Security can only be used for benefits and the administration of services to provide those benefits. Well, uh, that's what the provisions say. But what if you hear what Kevin McCarthy exposes? And he talked about this in March. This is why he gets so much hate from the rhinos, right? From the rhinos, even though he put three, he put five people up. The rhinos maintained the actual people fighting for America were refused. He's telling you exactly what you need to know. And I pointed it out yesterday and you saw it today. So pushing partisan legislation that would change how we conduct elections and how we can speak. It's Nancy Pelosi's number one priority. In fact, the legislation is called H.R. 1. Now, here's what it would do. First, H.R. 1 sends public dollars to fund political campaigns, not to build roads or bridges, but to add 600% to every small dollar donated by Americans. Are you listening to that? Tell me where they're going to get it. Social Security, anybody? Where are they going to get it from? How are they going to take federal dollars in order to fund campaigns? This is going back to the first video I showed you with how to be a dictator. You need that money to give it to your key people. This is how they keep their key people happy. Now they're going to take that shit out of federal tax dollars, not to build roads, not to reinforce schools, not to do any of that stuff, but to do what? to campaign fund the people that are holding the keys. Listen carefully. So let's say Mary from Michigan donates $200 to preferred candidate. Well, now you have just chipped in another 1200 bucks. Second, HR1 would legalize voting for convicted felons all over the country. So um, say that Joe Schmo that lives next door to you is, you know, is a diehard communist. He wants everyone to have free shit and everything. He's voting for AOC. He pays $200 to AOC out of his stupid Starbucks wage. And guess what? Your federal tax dollars are going to give another $1,000 into that pocket of AOC so they can buy her spot. 
even if they were convicted of election fraud. Does that make sense to you? Not only is this dangerous, it's unconstitutional. Now, third, HR1 would weaken the security of our elections and make it harder to protect against voter fraud. Here's how. It would automatically register voters from DMV databases. Voting is a right, not a mandate. In most cases, this legislation would actually prevent officials from removing ineligible voters from the rolls and would make it much more difficult to verify the accuracy of voter information. So future voters might be underage, dead, or illegal immigrants, or maybe even registered one, two, or three times. Democrats just don't care. Democrats call HR1 the For the People Act, but it really is a For the Politicians Act. It's not designed not for the politicians, it's to enslave the people act. That's what it is. So let's say I want to vote for Trump, but my neighbor wants to vote for Democrat, right? Uh, they want to vote for Biden, let's say. <laughs> I mean, he's not even around. But anyway, I give 100 to Trump, they give 100 to Biden. Guess what? Huh. Normally, you would say that then, you know, Trump would get another 600% of that, he would get, you know, 600 more dollar, 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 dollars, right? He would get that. But in fact, he's not. Because if the FEC is three Democrats, two Republican, they'll decide to give that 600% to the candidate of the ruling party. Are you paying attention? And so they've already started that fund. Uh, they have a fund for the FEC that they start in 2021 and would be ready in 2024 to use. So they're already taking your money. Now, a lot of you will say these, these people are fucking rhinos. Yeah, they are. And the rhinos that are in the cut of getting money and working within their company structure of getting monies, like keep your keys happy, right? Are pretending to be they're pretending to be fighting, but not really, but they hate Trump, right? The other ones that are sneaky, like Kelly Armstrong, his oil company deals actually had shit intertwined with a company that Epstein did. So he's one of the boys, right? Um, so they've got him snagged somewhere. I mean, the fastest way to get a key to sit and kneel to you is by ensuring that you have the right blackmail on them. That's number one. Uh, the right amount of blackmail. If we go down, you go down. Um, this is the part where someone would stand up and say, I really don't care. This isn't right. This is a dictatorship. This is not what the United States was intended to be. So the fight that you're seeing between the rhinos and the Democrats is that the Democrats won't give them any more money. They will not cut them into the deal. Why? Because they don't trust them. Because they're like, well, I don't know, man, you saw a glimmer of hope with Trump and maybe you're not that way and maybe you're not this way. Again, revisiting the first one that tells you how to be a dictator. This is what it's all about. They want to control every you will not be voting. And you know what? Uh, when 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 Millie Weaver and I did that video on election fraud, we explained to you that they're moving everything online to the point that you don't even have to go and vote. They'll already know from your social media, from your posts and everything, what you're most likely gonna vote as. And they already know who needs to get more money and what keys they need to pay for more. There is no more America in this America right now as you see it. This is reality. This is what they have done. And this is what they want. Just to top it off, just so you understand, they're rewarding each other carefully.
They're rewarding the people that have made change. Now, this isn't for the um, the actual voting part, okay? You're going to see a reward that you're going to be like, what is going on here? I'm so confused. So here we are. They're taking your taxpayer dollars. They're going to be funding the candidates they choose, right? And if you don't like them too bad, they're still paying because your neighbor pay sent them a dollar per se, right? They probably got one penny or no money whatsoever. They'll still get that money. This is how they take your money and enrich the people that will stay loyal to them for money. Pay attention to this. His quick trip to space, Jeff Bezos had uh, two other big surprises in store for, uh, for people today. Uh, he made charitable donations in the amount of $100 million each to two people, two friends of this program, uh, that uh, that are the money is to be used as they see fit. They're CNN political commentator and former special advisor to President Obama, Van Jones, and Chef Jose Andres, founder and driving force behind World Central Kitchen, which served millions of meals to disaster survivors around the globe. And we, uh, on this program, we've interviewed him from Houston and San Juan, and I can't even remember how many other places, uh, but uh, both of you have just done extraordinary work. Uh, we talked to you earlier in the day. You got the call, was it Saturday? Yeah, just walking uh, walking on a path and the phone rang and it's Jeff Bezos saying that he felt that we needed to do something to support people who were trying to bring people together across racial lines, political lines, and he wanted to, to be supportive. And then Lauren, his partner, said that hey, we want to give you a hundred million dollars to do it. And I literally lost the ability to speak. <laughs> You're sort of burying the lead. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, when did you find out? Yeah, uh, uh, around the same time. I mean, a few days ago, and, and, and the theme was this. It's like, what can we do to try to start investing in how to change the world one place at a time? And he told me, Jose, we, I want to support you with, with this money to start finding ways to say that hunger, finally, once and for all, is going to be a problem of the past. We need to be bold, and the moment to be bold is now. You know, I, I was thinking about you today, I mean, both of you, but, you know, I remember you in Houston on, like, an early scouting mission to sort of see what your role could be in disasters. And, and you'd already been doing it for years at that point. I mean, you got involved in Haiti and a lot of places. Um, to see what you have created thus far and to think about what $100 million can do for you or for others, do you have a sense of what you want to do with it yet? Well, on, on, on relief and emergencies, I can still not claim I'm an expert. I still keep going with the teams of Wall Central Kitchen to keep learning. How can we do it better? What this hundred million can do is how can, how can we make every dollar to multiply, planting the seed in coming with simple, better ways with boots on the ground in emergencies to be next to the people when they needed the most, which is after the hurricane, the fire, the tornado hits, being next to the people now. And beyond that, how are we going to be doing reconstruction to make sure that the money we put forward is not thrown into the problem, but invested into the solutions. Again, we can do better. We must do better. And food is a great pathway to build a better future. And, and Van, I mean, anybody who has seen you on, on CNN, even if they don't know what you do outside of CNN, has heard you talk about grassroots organizations over and over again. I feel like every time you run, you're naming groups I've never heard of who are doing work <laughs> in small communities and big communities. Um, do you know what you're going to do with this money? 
Well, I mean, what, what I do know, I don't know. I mean, we really we just found out, and so we're going to have a few people giving you some ideas. Yeah, we might have, have a yeah. few ideas, but but what I want what I want to say is that you know I've been a part of bringing people together across political lines to get people out of prison. You've gotten you criticized know. for that. I've got, gotten criticized, but not by the people who got out of prison. Uh, Twenty two. Uh, bipartisan uh, criminal justice bills in the past three years in states like Georgia and Mississippi, tough places where we've been able to get red and blue, black, white, and brown together to get stuff done. And I think Jeff Bezos saw that and said, listen, if you can actually get people together, maybe some of these problems can get solved. And so the key is to believe that ordinary people are a lot smarter than the folks who get paid to yell at each other on TV or in Washington, D.C., and to empower them with the ability to solve their own problems is what we're going to do. The award he, he's named, it's courage and, and civility. And it's an interesting combination because there's a lot of folks who pretend they have courage who are on cable news who are yelling and shoving their opinions down people's throats and telling people what to do, who to vote for, how to... You mean like you. So basically, he's saying that he's going to empower people to be that middle person. You know, we've watched a couple movies like that where, you know, the government is owning the people basically like the latest one, the, the, the latest one that's very pertinent, which is Arcadia. Uh, if you remembered the person that was controlling all the medicines that would go to the people of one township was a guy himself and they were having this key stay loyal by blackmailing him that his family won't come to where he's at at the nice apartment with food and medicine if he doesn't get the other people to all do what they say so this is how they create the disposable keys think uh and then there's a lot of people who are just listening to other people's ideas and seeing what works and trying to bring people together and that's something both of you have always done i always say that we need to build longer tables, not higher walls. We saw through this pandemic that the men and women at World Central Kitchen with many chefs across the country and volunteers, uh, we put together almost 3,000 restaurants to tackle the issues that we were facing. Hospitals that had no food, shelters, elderly. We got almost a bill through Congress called the FIT Act. We were able to bring back then Senator Kamala Harris and Senator Tim Scott. We were able to bring people out of the house, out on both parties together to support the bill that was pragmatic, that was smart, that was bringing people together and was solving a problem. This is the type of things that America wants to see. Food brings so America and the world together. More than 87% of Americans believe that every American should be entitled to a plate of food. You see, Bam. They're pulling at heartstrings, telling people about all these things and how they're going to help with $100 million, right? So they're patting themselves on their back while creating these factions, right, that they want in order to control the people more. That's the problem that we have. They're going to control us more, a hell of a lot more. And boom, that money is going to be used to control the people. And you know what? It's, it's money, 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 money. But you have to think of it. If God struck down on George Floyd's face to send a warning, you think he can't strike down again? Now, in closing, I want you to listen to before, you know, we have a discussion on this. Um, how Pelosi rejected Jim Jordan and Banks. Fixated on January 6th, all right? They've Listen to this. Talking about investigations, they've been talking about massive reviews. They obviously want to score political points. And now it's gotten ultra political. Um, the Democrats want to have a committee 
and they are vetoing key Republicans like Representatives Jordan, Jim Jordans, and Representative Banks. These are fantastic inquisitors. You want them on the committee, uh, but they've been rejected by Nancy Pelosi. So Leader McCarthy had something to say about that. This represents something that has not happened in the House before for a select committee by the historian. It's an egregious abuse of power. Pelosi has broken this institution, made it undeniable this panel has lost all legitimacy and credibility. And it shows exactly what I warned back at the beginning of January, that Pelosi would play politics. She's broken the institution. Wow. Well, someone who was uh, destined to be on that panel, but not anymore, is Republican Congressman Kelly Armstrong of North Dakota. And you saw him there in the clip with uh, Leader McCarthy. Congressman Armstrong, welcome to Newsmax. How are you? Thanks for having me, Greg. You bet. So just overall, before we talk about what Pelosi did here, do you see the need for a bipartisan panel to look into January 6th? Well, I mean, we obviously didn't support the earlier one, but when the speaker has, I mean, I think that's the point of all of this. The speaker has the ability to impanel this. What she doesn't have to do, what she doesn't have is the ability to pick who is on the committee. Uh, I served with Jim Jordan for two years on uh, judiciary through the Mueller, through two impeachments, through all of those things. And I'm really concerned about what uh, Leader McCarthy said. I think this institution is fundamentally being changed. And I don't think it has anything to do with the last election. And to be honest, I don't think it has anything to do with the next election. I think it has to do with Speaker Pelosi maintaining an ironclad grip on her conference for the next 18 months. Can they have a committee with just uh, Democrats? Because all Republicans, including yourself, have been pulled, understandably so, after what happened. Can they go forward without Republicans? Would they try that? Well, I think they will, because not all Republicans have been polled. And as long as there is one on the committee, they'll have a quorum. But I don't think the American people are going to give it any credibility, and they shouldn't. And this is regardless of where you stand ideologically on the spectrum. This is not how this place operates. This is not how this place should operate. And this is being, listen, every time Speaker Pelosi uses the word unprecedented, it's to consolidate power in her office. It was unprecedented to put a glass case in the balcony so she could get the gavel to begin with. It was unprecedented to put metal detectors around the around uh, the Capitol or the House floor. It was unprecedented to allow proxy voting long after it was no longer necessary. But all of those things give her a complete control over the U.S. House and over the People's House, and it's unacceptable. And unfortunately, when institutions change like this, they never go back to the way they were, and that's tragic. And we should be talking about that. Uh, here's a Democratic senator, uh, Casey of Pennsylvania, on cable today uh, talking about how they're going to shape this committee. Uh, and anyone who voted, anyone who voted for the objections to my home state of Pennsylvania or Arizona should have no role in this. They are, by definition, disqualified. They voted against the Constitution. They committed what I think is a constitutional crime. They should be nowhere near uh, the membership uh, and participation in any investigative uh, effort because they are, by definition, totally biased in favor of um, in favor of a set of actions that are contrary to our constitution. So you know, the vote wasn't. Um up or down on the Constitution. The Electoral Count Act of 1887 allowed for this. You were allowed to vote no on January 6th. What's your reaction to what he just said? Well, 
Well, it's very interesting that a senator is weighing in on that because Speaker Pelosi hasn't said that. And the reason she hasn't said that is because the, the her chairman of the select committee has voted to object to electors in the past. Jamie Raskin has voted to ele- object to electors in That's the right. past. Yeah. This is, but the bottom line is this. The majority does not get to pick minority membership. And if that's the road they're going down, listen, the math, the maps, and their policies are going to have us take back the majority in two years. And they, and a lot of their members better think about what this looks like. I don't think Sp- Speaker Pelosi cares because I don't think she'll be here in the minority. But the long-lasting damage she's doing to this institution is going to be, is going to be felt long after today. I don't think she'd be here in the minority. Dude, we're kicking all of you out. Every single one of you. Nothing can stop what's coming. Long after today. Um, what about getting back to the hearing about January 6th? Do you think that, uh, let's face it, the people who are deeply suspicious about Nancy Pelosi, what she did, what signals she gave to the sergeant at arms, security, no security, why those people were let into the Capitol. Did they want a conflict? Did they want uh, all of this? There are people who think that or are wondering that. You think she might be vulnerable on any of that? Well, there's a lot of questions we want to ask about uh, about Capitol Police leadership, why the why the National Guard was being staged, why they didn't have a protocol to get them in place uh, in place to begin with. Listen, they knew. I mean, we need to make sure why this uh, this entire building wasn't secure, and we need to make sure it never happens again. And we have to do that in a way that allows access to the people's house from constituents from all over the country that want to get here. Those should be our number one priorities. We want to keep everybody who works here who visits here and who's a member here safe and we want to allow access for the American people. That's what this commission should be working towards. But I think it's pretty interesting that Chairman Thompson said everything's on the table, but he's also said that the Speaker's office is off the table. So I don't know what everything on the table means, but it it means something different to me than it does to the chairman. Oh, yeah. It looks like uh, I hear that they're trying to work this out so they have to compel President Trump to testify. That's obviously a stunt on their part. Congressman Armstrong, we so appreciate you being here. Uh, Thanks so much, and we'll be right back. The only reason they want Trump to testify is to enrage the people. They know that you will take so much. They know that you will do so much. But hear me this, speaking it into reality. If lightning struck the face of George Floyd, do not think for a second that the most instrumental person doing this will not be struck. He has made himself hurt. This is for you to see. While many of you sit there with arms up because you are fighting a war and they're winning the battles, the war has been won. I'm telling you, we win the war. The battles are there. And every single battle is a slap across your face, making you feel like there's nothing you can do. Well, there's something we can do. Take them out. One by one. Let's just do our part, right? We're not going to sit back and wait for people. Take them out one by one. I would like to introduce you guys to how we're going to be doing this. Very open, shut, simple. Take a look at who your representatives are. Take a look at who your Senate is. Dig. You dig on shit all the time. Don't dig on shit how's this start using that machine that you still have access to 
Get in there and pull out information. Find out who your congressman or woman is talking to. Check out their campaign contributions. Every single penny of it. Sit down with your local people. Go through it one by one. And you'll be very surprised what you find. So I was looking into New Mexico to find the Chinese influence there. More so because um, when I was looking into the Zorro Ranch, which I wrote a very big article about on Tori Says, because everyone started to like talk about, you know, the witnesses and Ghislaine, but they totally forgot about New Mexico. So from the New Mexico side, uh, from, from the Epstein side, I'd come to a little bit of a dead end, but I saw a Chinese connection. Then from some Bohai document that I had gotten a couple months ago, brought me back to New Mexico. Then I found Gemini Rosemont, which is Chinese. And then two amazing Americans, fellow brothers and sisters, right, literally went down to the building and took a look for me. And so it is, it's there. And what I did see is the brazen presence. Not only that, the brazen money that the Chinese have given to their key people. I'd like to introduce you to one of those key people. And those of you in New Mexico, this person got money from the Chinese. So, and I can actually point that out to you and and I will be putting that tomorrow in the New Mexico room. Take a listen. Broke the glass ceiling last week electing its first ever all female house delegation to Congress. Okay, not only all women, all women of color. Joining us now, one of them, Congresswoman elect Teresa Ledger Fernandez and look at that smiling face, ma'am. It's so good to have you here and and I want to start with your with Ahora Esquando. That is your campaign slogan, essentially, that you got from your dad saying the time essentially translates to the time is now. Why is the time now and that we're seeing something like this history making take place in New Mexico? Well, uh, if that was my slogan. It came out of an idea that uh, I, my campaign was based on the idea that we need to protect what we love, right? That all these things we love from our beautiful planet to our health care to our future if we don't invest in education um, to this beautiful place we call home was under attack. And so my thing was we need to act to protect what we love because when you love something, you not only want to protect it from harm, you want to make it thrive. And that this was a moment where you know our democracy was at risk so much was at risk that it had to be ora, ora es cuando. it's time now to take this wonderful action and it turned out that it was all women uh, who won in our uh, election on Tuesday all women of color well, congratulations to you, Congresswoman-elect. I know one of the things that you are really interested in pushing from the beginning is COVID-19 relief. Your district includes a large portion of the Navajo Nation and other communities that have been very hard hit by COVID-19. So specifically, how do you hope to help those who need help the most right now? So I've dedicated about three decades of my life to working alongside Native American communities and tribes in rural areas, building things like rural health clinics. And what we know is that uh, these communities are incredibly vibrant, culturally vibrant, they're sovereigns. But what's also true is that the United States has failed to live up to their obligations to them. They failed to fund the Indian Health Service, to fund basic uh, at 
infrastructure. And so what we need to do is actually make sure that we provide that funding that was a solemn promise of the United States to the Native American tribes that we will provide this funding uh, in exchange for the land that we now occupy and use. This last bill, this administration didn't even get to the tribes the funding that had been appropriated. So we're going to change that and we're going to say let's fully fund the Indian Health Service. Let's fully fund the infrastructure. Let's make sure we get broadband because not just for Native American communities, but for communities across our country, they don't have broadband. What do you do without broadband when you need both telehealth, information, and be able to go to school in a pandemic? So we're going to really push to make sure we fund those. We fund those in uh, the recovery bills that we're going to be looking at. And it just needs to be a focus. There are a lot of more Native Americans going to Congress. I have this long experience. The nation has opened its eyes to this problem. So hopefully we'll do better. Well, ma'am, um, Robach and I have joked in the past couple of days, and we we're talking to people who are going to uh, Congress for the first time. Come here, they have big smiles on their faces. They're enthusiastic. <laughs> uh, they're optimistic. They use words like change. And we say, wow, we should check in in a year and see how they're doing after being in Washington. I, I wonder what you think about what you're stepping into in D.C., given where we are, how split the country has been, given some of the issues we've had, and also we are very much a divided country and now a country that has a president that a lot of people are waiting to concede an election. What do you think you're stepping into in D.C. right now? Well, we're stepping into a D.C. that, we'll be honest, we didn't think it was going to be what we thought on Monday, right, that we that the Democrats might have taken over the Senate. We don't know that answer yet. But what we do know is that when uh, I talk to my constituents, they want to see results on things like infrastructure. There is overwhelming support to support access to health care, that it be affordable, that it be accessible, and that be available in your own communities. And so there are things that if we leave the name calling aside, we leave the idea that we're divisive and say, what are the things that we are united on and focus on that. We certainly hope that power of positivity is effective. Uh, we know that uh, that smile certainly has lifted our spirits today. <laughs> Representative-elect Teresa Ledger-Fernandez, thank you so much for your time, and we wish you the very best. Thank you so very much, and thank you for coming to Santa Fe, New Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you? She got Chinese dollar, dollar, paper dollar in Epstein's turf. And you know what's funny? During Epstein's turf, you know, everybody talks about the previous governor. How about the female governor who's a Republican? that let the Chinese take over turf in New Mexico, that let a Chinese company operate in New Mexico. How do we talk about her as well? See, because she's not really Republican. They're all playing every single American. They are playing and batting for the same team. And guess what? That team is not you. Now, what are we learning over this period of time for the past two years, right? Not one, two years. We're realizing that the more lazy we were, not knowing who was running what in our local communities, obviously we were oblivious to who was want running what on a national scale. You think you knew who your representative was based on whatever the media told you. You didn't even bother to look at your local government. This is what happens when you get comfortable and bombarded with life. 
we are bombarded with life. Guys, I can't even tell you how time has stood still for me this week because I don't have enough time to do things because I have life situations in life, right? That's what happens. We life happens, you know, life, your household, your health, you know, food, paying bills, right? All of that shit happens and you're so distracted trying to address your basic needs that they take over. And that is what's happening right now. And you're seeing it. So we are now though making the time to discuss these issues. And that is all that needs to be done. You don't have to do more than discuss issues and make your voice heard. That's the moral of this trauma that everyone is going through right now. You don't really have to do anything except for pay attention, ask questions, hold people accountable, and try to have your voice heard. If everyone did that, we would be in a way better place right now as a nation. And this is what plagues us. And this is what the problem is. Now, while many say, whoa, you know, these past shows are very devastating. These are reality. I don't know how else to put it. They are gaslighting you with the way that they are acting and the authority that they're instilling upon you, a free person. They want you to take the streets. They want you to rebel. But then on the other hand, if you do nothing, they take over. So what do you do? You keep making your voice heard. I mean, it would be great if everyone decided in one specific community because they were that tight knit to say, fuck you, we're not paying taxes. That could probably happen in a city of like 1500 people where the city actually stands up and their little mayor says, you know what? We're not paying federal taxes. Come get all of us. I mean, they can get all of you, right? They can get some of you, but it can't happen in a big city. That organized voice loud together. That's a big deal. There's more honesty and reporting because we're not getting real information. Like yesterday, you know, Everyone was ooing and aahing over Robin Ware, and it's like, stop. That shit's so fucking old news and such a low-hanging fruit. Why not report real shit? Because they don't give a shit. They're waiting three months down the line to take something they saw and recycle it as theirs to make it seem like they're doing something. They're not. You are. You are. While people are talking about project this, but nobody gives a shit. That's not going to fix it right now. People do give a shit. Let me take that back. People give a shit. Everybody should give a shit. And if you actually watch, and I'll release it, one of my really, really old videos from 2018, you'll see fucking Project Pegasus on there. Don't let people throw shit at you like it's something new, okay? It was on there. The schematics, the whole nine yards. In a YouTube video from long, long time ago, all right? So there's a lot that we should be looking into and we should be paying attention to. But there's a lot that we're not doing because we're focusing on that. What we need to be focusing is on hard evidence and things that we can push. Oh, the project, what are you going to push with it? 
You're going to release the names of people? No, man. You need to go to the head of this monster, to the head of the snake. And you're not going to do it by talking about projects and releasing, you know, supposed secret information. That's not how you fix it. How you fix it is by going specific to the target and attacking it with the right things. That's the only thing you can do. That's the only thing you can do. Like, for example, New Mexico can go full throttle on their uh, congresswoman right there. You got money from the Chinese. You're bought and paid. Uh, it's $1,000. Don't give a shit. Still foreign interference. Uh, and they paid you. Uh, the company's Chinese, and it's run now by a Chinese guy. And it was Hunter Biden's. And, well, no, this is where you put your foot down, and you focus on facts. And you focus on facts and you push the facts through. That's how you get things done. If you're focusing and you're spending your energy on a, a shit ton of rabbit holes, it's not going to help you. It's not going to help your nation. And it's not going to help your future. The only way that you help your future is on focusing on tangible things that you can actually rectify right now. It's so weird. But, you know, one thing I have to say is... They're, they are talking, see, targeted. Let me show you what I mean. Targeted. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. So much sadness, but honestly, so many great stories right now. Texas Democrats, the ones who fled to Washington, D.C., the freedom fighters, the ones who came on a pilgrimage with nothing but a case of Miller Lite and the coronavirus. Well, it turns out they just claimed several more victims. A White House official and an aide to the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, have tested positive for COVID-19. Apparently, they got it from the pilgrims from Texas. The moment we'll have an update on the conditions of the victims and the scale of the super spreader event. But first tonight, there are a lot of different ways to sell out to China if you're looking to do that. If you're an unscrupulous finance mogul in New York, for example, you can just prop up the Chinese economy with billions in investment. Wall Street has been doing that for decades. If you're an elected official in Washington with a flair for demagoguery, you can do your part by pretending that the real threat to this country isn't the rise of Chinese power and ambition. No, 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 no. The real threat is that dastardly Vladimir Putin and his team of secret agents and his network of Macedonian troll farms. Just go on television a lot and say that, and maybe people will believe you. The question is, what if you don't have the money or the rhetorical skills to do either one of those things, but you still want to help? What if you're a not very bright third-string Democratic congressman from the East Bay? How can you do your part for Xi Jinping? Well, you could just find a Chinese spy and then have sex with her repeatedly. That's what Eric Swalwell did. Now, we're not going to get into the details of their relationship because this is a family show, and honestly, it's pretty creepy. But we can tell you the spy's name was Fang Fang. And no, we're not making that up. Fang Fang, unfortunately, is not available to join us on the show tonight. She's fled back to her handlers on the Chinese mainland ahead of a Justice Department investigation. But um, Fang Fang, bang, bang. Amazingly, Eric Swalwell is still with us. He's still around. In fact, he's been elevated to a seat on the House Intel Committee, the perfect reward for the boyfriend of a Chinese spy. In a city obsessed with collusion with foreign powers, Eric Swalwell exits his relationship with the Chinese spy and ascends to the Intel Committee. It does make you wonder. Swalwell, you'll recall, came from nowhere nine years ago to beat one of the most powerful and longest serving members of Congress, Fortnoy Pete Stark. It took an awful lot of money to do that, but somehow, despite being mediocre and inarticulate and totally unknown and very young, Eric Swallow had the money to do that. 
Yeah, his wife and this property that's on the border where a lot of trains go through, you know, with cartel shit and people and drugs. So where did that money come from? Good question. After the election, the FBI determined that Eric Swalwell had raised most of that money illegally. A donor called James Tong had supplied the money without complying with campaign finance laws. To this day, we have no idea where most of that cash came from. Swalwell, of course, pleaded ignorance. And because he's dumb, the authorities apparently believed him. How would he know he was breaking the law? The guy's an idiot. That was their reasoning. Swalwell blushed and promised never to do it again. So from the very first day, there have been real questions about this Eric Swalwell character, if that is indeed is his real name. But you'd never know it now. Such is the magic of resume laundry and the distorting power of the American news media. Even a moron with a weakness for sex with Chinese spies over time begins to look like Henry Kissinger if he does enough cable news hits. And that's exactly where Eric Swalwell is today. The spy's boy toy is now an elder statesman. That's his personal assessment of himself. Listen. It's pro wrestling, uh, to be honest. Many of my colleagues are better suited to work at the WWE. Uh, and, and I say that about <laughs> Gates because I've worked with him on marijuana issues. I've worked with him on other issues, especially really before Trumpism took off and he turned into a character and he would, there were times where he would laugh at himself about how stupid he had to act, you know, to keep, you know, the act going. I've been working on marijuana issues, says Eric Swalwell, but the rest of those guys, they're all clowns, says Swalwell, adjusting his plastic nose and fright wig and applying more grease paint. I'm the only serious person in this building, me and Fang Fang. It is just too funny. Meanwhile, wasn't it just last week that we got that picture of Eric Swalwell grinning shirtless on a camel and cutter as his faithful servant of color, his coolie, looked on adoringly in the foreground? Eric Swalwell, the great white hunter of Alameda, leopards fear him. That particular camel hunt, by the way, was paid for by business interests in the Persian Gulf. Oh, so we're starting to sense a theme here. Eric Swalwell has a problem with money. Shocked? You shouldn't be. Like so many progressives, Swalwell's deepest desire is to live like a rich guy out of some movie. And that's difficult on a congressman's salary. So corners get cut. Here's the latest example of that. Campaign finance records obtained by Fox News show that Eric Swalwell spent thousands in campaign contributions. That's money he raised to run for office, money he is prohibited by federal law from spending on himself. He spent that money on expenses that seem suspiciously like personal luxuries. Those would include limo rides, booze deliveries, high-end steakhouses. And some of those expenditures appear very clearly to be for personal use. And again, that's illegal. For example, one order at the alcohol delivery service Drizzly was for under $10. Was that a campaign event? No. The man just wanted his tequila sunrise and he wanted it now. And so the donors paid for it. Most interestingly, on the disclosure form, more than $20,000 of Eric Swell's campaign expenditures went to the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Half Moon Bay, California. Now, weirdly, or maybe not so weirdly, Eric Swalwell's wife is an executive at that very hotel. So clever members of Congress, the honest ones, don't do things like that. And when they do things like that, they tend to get in very deep trouble. In fact, it was just two years ago that Congressman Duncan Hunter of San Diego, same state, different party, pleaded guilty in federal court to stealing hundreds of thousands of dollars in campaign funds that he and his wife used for personal expenses. He went to jail for 11 months. 
Then in 2013, you'll also recall Congressman Jesse Jackson Jr. and his wife, both Democrats, went to prison for the same thing. Now, we're not saying Eric Swallow should be charged with sleeping with a Chinese spy or for misusing campaign funds. But we do know that under the standards that Eric Swallow himself has laid out, we're going to need an immediate federal investigation, possibly a special counsel. The American people deserve to know what the Russians have exactly on Donald Trump. Whether it was witting or unwitting, the end result is just as destructive because the president has drawn us close to a foreign adversary who is not our friend. <laughs> Eric Swallow is saying someone else drew close to a foreign adversary who's not our friend. Really, how close, Eric Swalwell? Hmm? <laughs> like Fang Fang and the Bang Bang? Is that how close? See, you know, Tucker nailed it. One by one, like toy soldiers, we could take them out with shit like this. And the thing is, you know how we do it? Obviously, we do it by putting it in the media and saying we want a federal investigation. But what the fuck? Where are his constituents bitching about it? That's how you fix it. You find something about your dude or your dudette. And you find it and you do it. You do it. You can sue them and remove them. Your state laws allow you to do that. So this is what you should be digging on to do it. I mean, I'm already looking. Alexander, he's not in my district, but I know there's a lot of people from the west side of Cleveland <laughs> that voted for that schmuck with a football who said, I'm for Donald Trump. Donald Trump got right behind him too. Said anything you need. And then after he was sworn in, let's impeach him. And it's like, you little bitch, you just campaigned, took everybody's money saying that you were for the people's president and then you backstab him. I think it's time to remove you. So I'm waiting for the constituents of that guy, some of them are on vacation, to get back. And as we all start getting together with our local groups, that's something we should do. We are victims to his lie. We are victims to what he did. He tricked us into paying for his campaign, telling us that he's going to support our president, and he didn't. That is fraud. And we can prove that we were defrauded. Maybe we can prove some of the money that he got. I'm just saying. So this is what everyone has to be doing. Is you're great at digging. You got time on the internet. Shit. Grab a list of whoever your senator and congressperson is and start digging. Find another friend, dig some more. There's a lot of shit out there. And all you have to do is find something to be a victim about. I mean, the left is doing that shit like every single day on stupid shit, too. Why can't you? Of course you can. And that's what we need to be doing. We're now victims of their lies. We're victims. And it's time that we take our things to court because the court is going to have to argue that you're wrong. Well, how are they going to prove that you're wrong if you've been victimized? I'm just, I'm just giving the example of the football player. There are so many things or for New Mexico. She got Chinese funds. I don't care. Have her answer to that. She should answer to that. Make her pay a fine at least something. Something that negates. I mean, guys, think about it. Fang Fang was his chick right? His side chick, right? It's Chinese. He got Chinese money. He's getting cartel money. He comes out of nowhere and he's sitting on the intelligence committee, on the intelligence committee where most of the negotiations with other nations are done. That is indeed the land of freaking confusion. 
God bless everyone. I'll see you tomorrow. To the street. Now, did you read the news today? They say the danger's gone away, but I can see the fire still alive. Burn him into the night. There's too many men, too many people making too many problems, and not much love to go around. Can't you see this is the land of confusion? But this is the world we live in And these are the hands we give on Use them and let's start trying To make it a place worth living in Man, where are you now? When everything's gone wrong somehow The men of steel, the men of power Are losing control by the hour This is the time, this is the place Where we look for the future And not much love to go around And you see this is the land of confusion but this is the world we live in And these are the hands we give on Use them and let's start trying To make it a place worth fighting for